We're in this series, The Perfect Church. And each week, we're talking about a lie that we have adopted, heard, or maybe both, that we've taken in as the church, lies about how the church should go. The first week, we talked about how everything should be perfect, that a church should have all its ducks in a row and everything to perfection, almost this utopian version of church. We said that's a lie, that church is actually messier maybe than we want it to be. And we have to enter into that and not ask the question, how do we build a perfect church? But ask the question, how can we be a faithful one? The second week, we looked at the lie, it's all about you. That, that, that everything the church is, the church, the community of Christ, exists for the individual. That's a lie, we said. Instead, the church, the community of Christ, does not exist for the individual so much as the individual exists for the community of Christ. And that that difference is paramount important. This week, we're looking at this simple lie. It will be quick. It will be quick. That the work of God would be fast, that we can put it in a microwave, that everything we're doing in church would happen quickly, and how easily we can adopt this lie. You see, again, just like the other lies of it's all about you, we swim in this culture of individualism. Everything is perfect. We swim in a culture of perfectionism. Well, this week, The lie is it will be quick because we swim in a culture of immediacy. That actually everything about our country and our way of life, our economy and our technology speak to make this happen fast. Everything we want to happen quickly. And we actually bank a lot of our resources into personality, talent, technology, and resources so as to manufacture something that could be the quickest, most efficient thing possible that can help us live our lives. That the world's economy is on personality, talent, and resource, and the time frame is immediate. We want things fast. We want things immediate. But that God's economy, his time frame, his government, his kingdom is very, very different. In fact, God's economy, it involves one ingredient. That as I study scripture and as I look across this, God is really looking for one thing, an umbrella which many things fall under, and it's faithfulness. It's this idea of being faithful. It's all over scripture. We're going to look at it today. But that when we commit to faithfulness, as God has committed to us, the time frame is actually really slow. There's a passage in 2 Peter that talks about God's timing being different than ours. It says, don't count the Lord's slowness as one who is slow. Instead, understand this, that with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. In other words, the way in which God thinks about time is alien to the way that you think about time. That God's timing is very, very different from yours. And the kingdom of God works opposite in the ways of all of our technologies. In a world where I will prime it has become a sentence, like let me just Amazon prime this, that's been a verb now. In a world that has this immediacy, we meet a God who actually has a slowness about him. And then we put that to the church. And we think, because we look at maybe the early church, we read the book of Acts and we think about the early church, we think the early church was successful and it grew quickly. We read about the numbers growing and growing and growing, but we forget that that was happening in a small corner of the world. That like as the church was expanding, Jesus says it's gonna go from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that would be a slow process. A process you and I are still involved in today that actually there are corners of the world that have not yet heard the gospel. It has been a slow expansion. But people think that Paul and the early apostles, the founders of the Christian movement, had a type of business acumen, 
They'll try to, there, there's comments that people will make that say, well, they were good at strategy. These were uneducated common men, so far as we know, who were untalented and unskilled. This was not the picture painted. In fact, Robert Wright, who wrote uh, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2009, a book called The Evolution of God, he argues that the whole reason the early church, he's not a Christian, he says the only way that the early church got going was because Paul was a skilled businessman. I can't tell you how wrong that is. I mean, Robert Wright is a very smart man, but he needs to read a little bit more of his Bible. Because if you think about Paul's ministry, he was a man of weakness, in Acts chapter 20, verse 9, he's, uh, Paul is teaching to a group in an upper room, and it gets very hot, and he's teaching for three hours, and a young boy passes out, falls off of the roof, and dies. Not a good church start, right? Not a good way to start your service. In uh, 2 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says this, when I was with you, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. He says this, my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom. He's like, I didn't even make sense when I came to you. There's a rumor floating around about Paul in the early days. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, he, he repeats this rumor. He says, this is what people say about me. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. <laughs> and his speech is of no account. That was the rumor going around about Paul. So this was a skilled entrepreneur. This was a polished businessman who was networking communities and building establishments. No. This man was showing up in weakness and trembling. He was not a skilled orator. This man was deeply troubled when he came to each community. You see, the early church was not successful because they had talent, skill, resources, and technology. The early church was successful because they were faithful. And that actually, more deeply, biblically speaking, faithfulness equals success. Despite what happens... The early church was not successful because of its numeric growth. It was not successful because they raised a lot of money or multiplied small groups or planted other churches. They were successful because they were faithful. Let me show you. Paul, in reflection on his ministry, sends this letter to his protege, Timothy. And in 1 Timothy, if you've got a Bible, head there with me. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. You'll see Paul reflecting on his life in ministry, and he puts it this way. It's in your bulletin. It'll be on the screen. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me, here's our word, faithful. Underline it. Circle it. We'll come back to it. He judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And he says, amen. Three thoughts on faithfulness I see Paul bringing us out. The standard of faithfulness, the fuel, and the beauty. First, the standard of faithfulness. That God has put this word faithful as the standard for all human life and particularly to his people, the Christian church. Before we go on, what does this word really mean, faithful? We're going to define it this way. 
two kind of ways to think about faithful. First, continuing in a commitment to something long after the mood in which the commitment has passed. So all of you who have been married have exemplified faithfulness in some ways. If you've been married longer than just maybe a couple weeks, the mood in which passes and you have to stay committed to it. Those of you that have worked out have experienced faithfulness because the mood in which you made the commitment originally to work out passes over time. Unless you're weird. Some of you are weird. You're like, I love running. I'm like, why? You know, the only reason I run is because my wife's like, you will die if you don't. She's a doctor. So I listen to her. Like, she's like, She's like, you will literally die if you don't, like, do something. And I'm like, okay, I better do something. I don't want to die, you know? But, like, the people who, like, are always in the mood to run, like, I don't know, you're crazy. I don't, or, or disciple me, something, one of the two. Uh, you're crazy or disciple me. Um, but, like, the mood passes with commitments we make. Being faithful is when we decide to continue in them despite the mood changing. Secondly is just consistently doing what you said you would do over a long period of time. When you say you're going to do something, do you consistently do it? It, It's the same reason you could use both metaphors of marriage or working out the same way. You say you're going to be married, you vow something, are you going to continue to do it? You say you're going to get healthy, you're going to eat healthy, you're going to work out, do you continue to do it? That is being faithful. Other ways to think about it would be like trustworthy, reliable, committed. These are the words that we could use for faithfulness. This right here defined in my mind, is the greatest uh, ingredient to a life of an effective Christian and an effective church. Right here. God's standard for people is that he would have a group that consistently commits to following Christ, that consistently lays their life down, despite the mood they're in. That seems to be the standard as I look across Scripture. Now, why? Why would God require, why would God have faithfulness be this idea of, and notice I said effective, by the way, effective Christian life. You see, I'm not saying you can't be saved without being this kind of faithfulness. I'm saying it's the number one byproduct of salvation. It's like when you're saved, this starts to bloom. It's an effective Christian life. Why would God require this of us? Well, when you look at the Old Testament and God's self-revelation, when he tells you who he is, this is the kind of language he uses, is the this idea that he is a faithful God and that if he wants to partner with people, they're going to have to have the same toolkit. His toolkit is filled with faithfulness and ours has to be as well if we want to partner with him in the activities that he does on earth. This is what he says in Exodus 34, one of the clearest self-revelations of God. He gives this to Moses. This is from the mouth of God. He says this, the Lord, he, he says, I am merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Look at this. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Notice God's great, great steadfast love and his absolute justice are continuing for thousands of generations. That God will keep his love and his justice going forever and ever and ever. If you go a couple of books after Exodus, you get to Deuteronomy. Moses, this is very early in God's revelation to his people, to the Israelites. Moses is telling his people this in Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people. Chosen you, Israelites, to be a people for his treasured possession. Look at 7. 
it was not because you were more in number <laughs> than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. He's like, I picked the teeniest nation. I, I didn't pick Egypt. I picked a little tribe of families. But look at it. Eight. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, redeeming you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh king of Egypt. Nine, this is an important verse. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. God is consistent in his love and consistent in his justice for thousands of generations. Now, here's the really important thing. If you've read your Old Testament, God's mood changes to his people. God's mood changes. There's times he's super pumped about his people. He's like, I love you. You're my people. There's other times where he's like, you are idiots. All of you are, he calls them names, like stiff-necked. You need a good insult this week. Use it. It's like, you're stiff-necked people. You're stubborn. You're, you're, he calls them adulterous. There's times also where God's heart is grieved. Like he's just so pained by the decisions they're making. He knows that the decisions they're making is leading to death, and he's pained. Here's the important thing about God, though. While his mood and emotional state changes, his character is consistent. That everything that God is and all he does remains consistent because despite the mood, he continues to do what he said he would do over a long period of time. You look at these scriptures, he's like, look, I'm in this because I told Abraham I'd be in it. (laughs) And I'm remaining steadfastly committed to you because that's who I am. It's not because it's what I like to do or feel like doing. It's because it's an essential part of my nature. I cannot give up on you. I will not give up on you. I am God, and I will consistently do what I said I would do. God requires us to be faithful because he is. Jesus, in his life and ministry, he built faithfulness into the fabric of his teaching and life. If you read Jesus' teachings, you'll notice he teaches a lot in metaphor. Uh, we, call them, we call them parables. It, it, it's a story that is an image that speaks to a deep, deeper truth. It's an elongated metaphor, a mini story that tells about uh, Jesus, about what he thinks the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God being the space in which you and God interact and he is your ruler. He is your ruler and when you enter that space where he becomes your ruler and you interact with him, that space is called the kingdom of God. Life with God. So, so Jesus would say something like, the kingdom of God is like, and then he would tell a story. And most of Jesus' metaphors about that kingdom, about life with him, are agricultural. And that's really important. In our present technological age, particularly in Silicon Valley, we cannot forsake the agricultural nature of Jesus' metaphors. We cannot say, oh, the workers in the vineyard is like the coders at Google, and we, like, change the metaphor. Okay, we, 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 we can't, oh, it's dumb, but, you're like, you know what I mean? Like, we can't be like, uh, the kingdom of God, you know that thing where Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a seed planted? It's like the kingdom of God is like a chip inserted into a microprocessor. We can't change the metaphors because within the metaphors themselves hide truth. And Jesus was teaching us something about who he was and then what he's expecting of us. That agricultural metaphors speak to what life with God would be like. So here's what it would be like. Number one, we know that agriculture is slow. 
And so with each of these points, you could replace agriculture with life with God. That when Jesus is teaching about agriculture, we know one thing's for sure, it's not going to be quick. It's just going to be a slow process. Jesus gives these stories. He, he tells all kinds of stories about seeds, trees, plants, plows, farmers, fields. In all of these scenarios, nothing is fast. I know we're very far from this. When it's 3 a.m., you can go get anything at anywhere, anytime. I get that. In his world, that wasn't in existence. If you didn't have enough food stored up, if you didn't have enough crops planted, you wouldn't live. And one of Jesus' central teachings with agriculture is that life will, be, life will be slow with God. It will not be a superhighway. Sometimes it will feel like a crawl. But that's what life with him is like. It doesn't go fast all the time. Two, agriculture is also dependent on outside forces. So no matter how much we advance technologically, a farmer is still reliant upon the weather. If it doesn't rain, if the sun doesn't shine, if the wind doesn't blow, if the climate doesn't move, the farmer's doomed. Likewise, if God doesn't move in our lives, we're doomed. Christianity cannot be manufactured. Discipleship cannot be manufactured. You cannot produce what God is trying to produce by yourself. It requires a seed planted. It requires water to be watered, the, watering the plants, the soil. It requires outside forces at work. And in the Christian life, you're going to need God's help for the Christian life. Number three, agriculture at the same time involves hard work. So it's not this Christianity and life with God is not just relying on outside forces and waiting for them to happen and crossing your arms until God moves. It's about working the field as the rains are about to come. It's about plowing. It's about doing the work. My father, he's in his second career, is a farmer now. He did business for a long time. He's a farmer out in Michigan. He's lost like 50 pounds. I'm concerned for him. I'm like, Dad, you're like over 60. I'm concerned about your weight loss. He's like, I just work all the time. He's up at four in the morning. He's feeding chickens. He's like feeding pigs. He's, he's like working the land. I mean, we are so distant from this. Me in particular, I'm from the city. I don't get this at all. But like, it's hard work. I mean, it's insane the amount of work you put into a farm. And as we distance ourselves and advance technologically, we lose sight that Jesus was trying to say, the kingdom of heaven is like workers in a field, period. And then he goes on and tells the story. Have you ever just stopped at that? The kingdom of heaven is like workers in a field. It's just like going out to the same dang field every single day and nothing changes. You're like, oh, the plants still haven't sprouted. Well, the tomatoes are still underdeveloped. Like, here we are again. That's life with God sometimes. You get up, you open this book, and you're just like, same book. Sometimes it's just nothing is going, and you're just like, I'm just going to go to the field every day. I'm just going to go. You go to church and you're like, another boring sermon. I hope not. But like, <laughs> give me like a pass on a couple of years or something, okay? Yeah, we need your help as pastors. But you know what I mean. You show up and you're like, just wasn't feeling it today at church. Yeah, so? So, seriously, do, do you think that the, the workers of the field are stoked about that every single day? I mean, there's some days where they're probably like, I love this job, it's so rewarding. But there's other days where they're like, I hate this. I can't believe I do the same thing every single day. It's about faithfulness, though. It's about continuing to do what you said you would do over a long period of time, despite the mood changing. Four, still, though, agriculture produces unique results. 
Jesus is trying to tell you something, that when you enter into life with him, life with God, it produces a kind of result you could never get if you didn't have him. Have you ever tasted a Walmart tomato after a tomato you got from the farmer's market? There is a difference. I'm here to report. There's a massive difference between a fresh strawberry and one that's been frozen for a whole year. That's what we do in America, because we want strawberries year-round, dang it, right? We want food year-round. I want to buy a tomato at three in the morning, right? So Walmart sells them. But it's not the same. It doesn't taste the same. And God, life with God is like that. Like when you're with God, it's going to produce this unique result. You go to the farmer's market, some Americans don't like it because they're like, this apple's bruised. And I'm like, that is what an apple is. I don't know what to tell you. Have you ever seen one before? Like in the wild, you know? It's like, <laughs> like they don't look pretty all the time. You know what I mean? Uh, so yeah, it's messy. It's bruised at times, but it tastes like nothing else. And life with God, it might involve bruises and might involve blemishes, but the result is like nothing else. You can't replace life with God. It's unique. And Jesus is saying if you commit to the faithful work, you'll get unique results. And finally, it's cyclical. Agriculture counts on seasons and seasons changing. And some of you have been going through a long, difficult winter. You haven't seen fruit. And you got to know, spring is coming. God works that way. He always shows up. You never know. Some seasons are longer. Some winters are longer than other winters. Some seasons are longer than other seasons. But God always shows up, and you can count on him. And life with God involves a kind of waiting on God to show up, much like the farmer waits on the rains. Do you notice, we join this metaphor when we say at Awakening, we are a church plant. We're, we're a church plant. We're church planting right now. Just, just think about that for just one second. What on earth makes you think this would be fast? When we say church planting, we're not saying church building. It's not a construction project. It's an agricultural commitment. It's about showing up every day and saying, we're going to plant these seeds. And I know some of you have been here for six years and you're like, it's been six years. How come the church isn't doing this? How come the church isn't doing that? How come the church is not moving in this way or building this kind of program? It's been six years. In God's mind, that's minuscule. In God's mind, 60 years is infancy. You're like, we are in the very early stages of, of growing God's church, of faithfully watering where we have planted, and just coming in day in, day out, and just saying, God, we want to be faithful to the church you've given us. This will be slow. You and I are a part of something at Awakening that when we are dead and gone, it will just be getting started. Could that just... In my, me submitting that to you, could that produce a little humility and patience within you? Just let that produce a little humility and patience that awakening, God willing, after we are dead and gone, will just be getting started. Rarely, and those of you that are older, you get this, rarely, if ever, do we see all the seasons of God. Like, do we see, in, in one church, we see the whole thing. We only see just a little fraction here on earth of what God's doing across a church and across a ministry. To me, there seems to be a clear common denominator for how to be successful in growing God's kingdom and its faithfulness. That is the standard. God's people have a mark of simply remaining. 
when I was a youth pastor, I remember I would get these volunteers that would come in. They'd want to serve in youth ministry. And when I was really first starting out, I would get really excited about the like Bible college student who was 22, just graduated, and he was like good with kids, good with kids. They'd be like, dude, I'm good with teenagers. And I'd be like, awesome. All the kids thought he or she was cool. They knew the Bible. And I'd be like, so excited. Yes, awesome. We got a good volunteer. But then I started to realize that people who are talented and excited are not always faithful. And there's certain people that believe they can rely on their talent and skill in God's kingdom, and fruit just is never produced. But that actually this ingredient of faithfulness is required, which is why the further I got into youth ministry, my favorite meeting ever was with like awkward dad who wanted to help out. And he would come to me and he'd be like, Chris, I wear new balances. <laughs> and I am not good with teenagers. They'd always say that. I'm so awkward. I'm not good with teenagers. I'm an old guy. And I don't think I have anything to give. I loved that meeting. Because you know what I got to say to that person? I got to say, you don't need anything. Can you continually do what you said you would do over a long period of time, despite the mood? And see, here's the thing. Most people in the older generations, they get that. They know that. They're like, yeah, I can do that. The guy would be like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah. I'm like, great, that's all I need. I need you to show up. I need you to love the students and love Jesus. I don't need you to be cool. Because I got so tired of cool people. I got so tired of, like, cool Bible college guy, cool college kid. He'd come in. He'd have talent. He'd have resources or something. He'd be like, oh, I love this ministry. He'd be gone in nine months where the fruit that God was trying to produce in the ministry, it happened over a long period of time. I was youth pastor at this church I'm talking about in my mind right now, seven years, where I saw a couple, like basically two classes rotate through. And I had some old awkward dads that were there with me the whole time, but, and they, stayed, or they were there before, and they stayed after. And guess what? Those dudes had the most fruit in ministry. Those guys made the most disciples. Those guys made the most commitment and most uh, fruit in their, in, their, in their ministry because of this key ingredient. They were faithful. Now, I had young people that did that too. I had young people. I'm just saying, if you're young, could you learn this now? Because simply remaining is a spiritual, it's spiritual fuel. So what do we do though? Because so much of our work in ministry and so much of our life as Christians, like we're not faithful people. And so right now at the message, here's what you're hearing. You're like, okay, I just need to be faithful. I need to like do better. I need to be better. I need to, and, and yes, some of you just need to make your commitments better. Like you need to be, be better at commitment making. I get that. Some of you need to be more careful about what you're committing to. But there's also something deeper. There is a fuel to faithfulness. The fuel of faithfulness, Paul talks about in verse 13. In verse 12, he says, God judged me faithful. But if you look at verse 13, he said that he was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. And then he says this, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, if you read that in the Greek, which you won't, but I did for you. In the, I wouldn't expect you to. But in the Greek, the word play is interesting. He says, God judged me faithful. And the Greek word is pistos. God judged me faithful. And then it says, but I was deep in unbelief. And that word is apistia, which is the opposite of faithful. So which is it? Was he faithful or unfaithful? See, the beauty is that Paul was unfaithful when God deemed him faithful. 
Because God's work in your life is what creates and recreates your faithfulness. Paul received mercy. He said, I acted ignorantly in unbelief and unfaithfulness. The secret to faithfulness is understanding that God was faithful to us even when we are faithless. That when we are without faith, God has tremendous amounts of it. That when we don't feel like showing up and the mood in which we have made the commitment has passed, God shows up. When we don't want to show up for that person, when we don't want to be at church, when we don't want to serve at church, God shows up and says, I have always been faithful to you. And he fills you with his faithfulness. You see, Paul will say this. This is 1 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, the next letter, Paul will say, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. How about the famous scripture in Romans 5, um, 8? It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were ungodly, while we were unfaithless. See, this is the secret. God's past and present faithfulness fuels our future faithfulness. That actually the track record of God as recorded in Scripture, and if you're careful to notate it in your personal life, that upon reflection on that past faithfulness, it actually will fuel your faithfulness ahead. That the more you reflect, you see, the, the answer is not to right now be sitting in church and going, okay, what do I need the commitments in the future? What do I got to do in the future? It's not to look ahead, it's to look behind. It's to look back on how good God was in Christ for you. Some of you even forget that you're a Christian, which is a miracle in and of itself. Like, you've just forgotten that. You're like, yeah, God saved me. I've been a Christian for 20 years. Yeah, God saved me. I've been a Christian since I was a kid. Are you kidding me? God has been so faithful in your life that he showed up? So faithful in your life that he would lure you in to become a child, son or daughter of God? His past faithfulness, faithfulness should fuel your future faithfulness. It's, it's a simple, you've had relationships in your life like this. Like people who have remained steadfast with you, you are so committed to them. Why? Because their past faithfulness increases and fuels your future faithfulness towards them. Some of you have a spouse like that who's for years has always been there for you or a mom or dad who's always been there for you, and you have increased, that's God all to the largest degree, that God is the perfect father who has been with you, and not just you, but thousands and thousands of generations, as the Old Testament says, and remained committed to his people. And the more we look at God's faithfulness, the more we are filled to be like him. You see, it says that God judged Paul faithful, and actually the Greek word there is to be considered faithful or to have an opinion on, which I love because Paul wasn't even faithful. Like his track record was not perfect faithfulness. His track record was perfect consistency in like murder. That's what he was. He was a murderer. He was a thief. He was a liar. And God says, I'm going to see what you have and I'm going to replace your heart. I'm going to change it and you're going to be faithful to me. Instead of faithful to knocking my name down, you're going to be faithful to building my name up. And I'm just going to see that in you and change your heart. God judges us faithful and trustworthy, not because we necessarily are, but because he is, and he actively works his faithfulness through us. And so what has God handed you? What has God faithfully brought to you? Because in his faithfulness, he's brought us all something, multiple things. God has faithfully brought you a family. What will you do with the family he's faithfully brought you? Will you be faithful with it? God has handed you an education. Maybe you graduated from college. You are now 
a part of the upper echelon of the most educated people in this world. What will you be, how will you be faithful with what God has been faithful to give you? Uh, some, some of you have been given money. You've been given good resources. God has blessed you and been faithful with producing money in your life. How will you be faithful with that money? All of us here, though, you guys, God's given all of us awakening. Those of you that call awakening home, man, he's gifted you with a church. How are you consistently doing what you said you would do over a long period of time, despite the mood changing for the church God has given you? How are you faithful with the church that God has faithfully brought to you? It's a question you and I have to sit with this morning. That God's past faithfulness has brought you to this point. And what have you done about it? What are you currently doing with what God has handed you? Because all you need to do is be faithful. Say, Chris, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at that. It's, you, you don't need that much. You don't need skill in ministry. You, you don't need talent in ministry. You don't need skill or talent in this church. Honestly, skill and talent can be a little bit um, of a distraction because we get distracted by how good people are at things instead of how faithful they are at things. And so for you sitting here, man, we're just saying be faithful. And, and, and that might mean some of you need to just show up to serve. Some of you need to help set up and tear down. Because you're like, I don't know where to start. Hey, start with set up and tear down. I don't know where to start. Man, start with greeting. Start with cafe. We have so many places in this church that you can faithfully be planting the seed of awakening. You can be faithfully be planting this church with us. Faithfulness, as Eugene Peterson put it, he describes it this way. It's a long obedience in the same direction. Notice, it's not a perfect obedience. It's just a long one. It's just one that continually goes the same direction. You might go two steps forward, one step back. You might go four steps forward, 20 steps back. But you're heading in that direction. <laughs> and you're going, God, I'm pursuing you. And it's just a long obedience in the same direction. Ultimately, when we commit to what God has committed to us in Christ with, we see a beauty. The beauty of faithfulness. You notice that Paul says when he received mercy, he says... It would be for this reason in verse 16, that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him. In other words, God has been faithful with you so that he might show his faithfulness through you. God's great patience has been given to you so that other people might see it. And likewise for this community, for this church. The beauty would be that people would step back and see awakening and we would not be known as a cool church we meet in a cafeteria, so that one's gone. But we would not be seen as like a hip church. We'd be seen as a faithful church. And people would see a beauty in that they, did, they don't see normally. Y'all have witnessed maybe an elderly couple strolling down the street, hands holding, or they're at a dinner and they're looking at each other longingly. And you're like, if you don't have a hard heart. <laughs> you look at that and you go, that is beautiful. It's beautiful in a way that our celebrity uh, couples cannot give us. Do, do you understand? You know this to be true. You see it in someone who has been dedicated to an art form for a long, long period of time. And they've crafted and honed this skill. It's beautiful in the way that someone young in it is not. There's a beauty to a veteran playing basketball that's just beautiful and precise, the way that a rookie can't play. You see, faithfulness has a specific kind of beauty that when seen, we know it, we see it. 
And God has given us that beauty because God has remained faithful to his people. That you see, the church is called the bride of Christ. And God has been committed to her for decades, centuries, millennia. God has remained faithful and committed to his people so that we might be staring longingly into his eyes again and that the world would see the bride of Christ and Christ himself looking at one another and committing faithfully to each other and the world would go, something is going on there. Something is beautiful there because it's not just that God was faithful to Abraham. It's not just that God was faithful to Moses. It's not just that God was faithful to David or to the other kings throughout Israel's history. He wasn't just faithful to Isaiah. He wasn't just faithful to Jeremiah. He wasn't just faithful even to his early church for the first couple of hundred years. He has always consistently done what he said he would do over a long period of time. Despite the mood, he says, I am committed to my people forever and always. And as long as we live, our job is to look back at God and worship him and follow him with the faithfulness that he has filled in us. God is doing something bigger than the flash, the technology, the celebrity, all of the things that we become enticed with and we want church to happen quickly. He has a longer story. He has a deeper history and you are invited into that. And for just a couple of decades, you and I could pour in to all that God is doing across the centuries and the invitation stands. Will you join? Awakening is just a piece. Awakening is just a couple of years where God will ultimately show his glory through us as we respond faithfully to him. I'm asking you, if you don't call awakening your home, call another church your home. But if you call awakening your home, faithfully commit here. Despite your mood, I'm going to give a bad sermon sometimes. Ryan's going to give a bad sermon. There's going to be bad sermons. The worship is not going to be to your liking. We are not creating a perfect church here. We want to be a faithful one. The difference is paramount, but it's worth it. In a world obsessed with newness and immediacy, we get to commit to the long obedience in the same direction. Church, I invite you to join. I invite you to join the story God is writing. Let's pray. Faithful Father, you are the one who is constantly committed to us. You are the one who never gives up. You are the one, though seasons change, you remain. You are the one we can count on. You are the one who is consistently good. And Lord, we as 21st century Americans obsessed with immediacy need a commitment to the long haul. And we need that through your power. And so Holy Spirit, Empower your people here. God, help awakening. We are a young church. We need a bigger vision. We need a deeper vision. Lord, that church is not just about what is good for us. But Lord, it's about worshiping and honoring you, and and we need help, God. And so I pray, as we worship, would you transform our hearts? As we come to the table, would you transform our hearts? We need you, and we need you to fill us with faithfulness. In your name we pray. Amen.